G'day folks and welcome back to Giving What We Can. In this episode, I'm joined by Neil Dallahan, a senior researcher at Rethink Priorities. Rethink Priorities is a non-profit organisation that conducts critical research to inform policymakers and major foundations about how to best help people and non-human animals, both in the present and in the long-term future. In this episode, Neil provides an overview of his work on improving animal welfare via legal reforms and alternative proteins. He shares his experience as a researcher within the effective altruism community. We cover the emerging cause of wild animal welfare. And finally, we look at what we can all do to help animals. So without further ado, here's Neil. Well, Neil, thank you so much for joining us. I'd love to hear more about you and the work you're doing at Rethink Priorities. Great. Thanks for having me, Luke. I'm really looking forward to chatting. Yeah, so I'm a senior researcher at Rethink Priorities. It's a nonprofit that conducts critical research to inform key decision makers on ways to improve the lives of humans and non-human animals now and in the future. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing recently is studying uh, legislative reform in the European Union and forecasting production volumes of cultured meat. Amazing. And how did you end up doing that? Uh, my background is in political science, so that gave me a lot of generalist research skills. And then it was sort of right time, right place, being in an environment of EA and like-minded people and finding this good job opportunity. Yeah, great. So you mentioned EA, which is effective altruism. Can you tell me a little bit about what interests you most about that field of research? Yeah, the thing that interests me most about effective altruism is that it's a set of tools for answering tough questions, not a set of truths. So it allows us to change our minds and change our interventions when we come across better evidence. And so we're not tied to doing the same old thing over and over again, even if it's not working. Wonderful. Can you tell me a little bit more about your work on farmed animal welfare and why that's particularly important? Yeah. So if you think that animals deserve any moral consideration at all, then there's almost certainly an unimaginable amount of suffering happening to animals in the farm system. Billions of animals are kept in extreme confinement only to be used for human consumption. And the acts of violence that are committed against them, if you did to a pet dog, you'd be thrown in jail, but they're routine. And the fact that they are routine is used uh, as a justification for making them legal. They're so common that it's legal. And unfortunately, because global meat consumption is continuing to rise across the world, new forms of factory farming are popping up, like octopus farming, or farming fish on land, or now farming insects to feed to other animals. And globally, this is like relatively neglected as a cause area. Only about 200 million was spent by organizations fighting factory farming in 2020, which pales in comparison to the amount spent on dog and cat shelters, which is far fewer animals affected. But luckily, there are some like promising signs of progress. We've seen cage-free corporate campaigns that seem to free animals and expectation from some of the worst forms of confinement. You've seen progress on alternative proteins like the Impossible Burger, and you've seen more governments recognizing the sentience of a wider scope of animals. So it's an area that has a lot of suffering, um, not enough funding, but luckily some tractable interventions. It's great to hear that you're focusing on this problem. Can you let me know how Rethink approaches this problem, the work you specifically do on this? So we use the common framework in effective altruism of importance, tractability, and neglectedness, trying to find problems that are large in scope, uh, affect lots of animal lives in this case, uh, tractable that we have some evidence that the intervention might work and might be cost effective, that you get a lot of bang for your buck in terms of impact, and neglected that there's not a lot of other people doing this and that if we stepped in we could have a big impact. 
We've talked about farmed animal welfare, another quite significant group of animals that is affected as wild animals. Um, I'd love to hear about how you see those two problems comparing. I don't have a strong opinion because I don't work in the wild animal team, um, but I think there are some key considerations. So you might think that wild animal welfare is really important just on the scope of it, because there are trillions of animals in the wild that could be suffering. You might also think that exactly because we have seen so much progress in farmed animal welfare, that the long-run trend is positive, whereas you are more pessimistic about the long-run trend of how we'll treat animals in the wild, and so we need to continue working there. On the other hand, exactly because you might think that we don't have a moral obligation to animals that we don't directly harm, you might think it's less important to work on, or you might think that because of your theory of moral circle expansion, that we have to get people to care about people first, and then farmed animals, and then animals in the wild that we cause harm to, and only finally animals in the wild that are suffering, not from human causes. One other consideration is about how much tractability there is in the field. So in farmed animal welfare, we have some idea of what works and what to pursue. Wild animal welfare is at a much more foundational stage where we're still developing what are even the questions, much less what can we actually do to help them. That really helps to clarify. Thank you. So looking at this from a donor perspective, what advice would you have for someone who's a maybe small to medium sized donor giving in the hundreds to maybe low tens of thousands of dollars over the course of the year? What would you direct them to do if they were interested in farmed animal welfare? So I think a lot of the recommendations and the Giving What We Can page are great. And I think the EA Animal Welfare Fund is a good default option. They're really good at spotting neglected promising opportunities. In general, I think I'd suggest that people focus on a small number of groups that they're excited about and fund those. And you can also support these groups through a donor advised fund like the EA Animal Welfare Fund. I personally take a cue from Benjamin Todd of 80,000 Hours, who wrote a post that said, despite billions of dollars more funding, small donors can still have a significant impact. Mm -hmm. And so how I've taken that into practice is looking for riskier bets with higher potential upside and that institutional donors are unlikely to fund. So that could look like uh, giving a small amount to help kickstart a new organization in a new field, or contributing to political campaigns, uh, or funding something at the edge of a more known cause area. Yeah. Speaking of which, are there anything uh, within this space that you think is particularly neglected or exciting right now? If you look at the amount of money that's spent in this space, of the 200 million spent by 2,000 or so organizations fighting factory farming, 80% of that was spent uh, in the US and Western Europe, despite the fact that most animals are farmed in Asia. Uh, so there's clearly opportunity for more funding in especially Southeast Asia and South America, uh, and in animals that are farmed in large numbers like crustaceans, farmed fish, and other invertebrates. Yeah. I'd like to get your view on the different approaches to this problem. So you've got things like corporate campaigns, you've got you know switching our food systems with alternative proteins. Where do you see this landscape here and what the different things are promising for different reasons and kind of what the interplay might be? Yeah, so the first thing to say is it's not a binary between those two popular options. There's also lots of other promising interventions like legislative reform, movement building, moral circle expansion. But those definitely are two of the ones that are sort of cool and receive a lot of funding. And I think they're both great. Corporate welfare campaigns, especially the cage-free ones, have attracted a lot of funding because they have a proven track record. Mm -hmm. They're expected to free millions of hens per year from cages. And also we've seen some progress on broilers. Those are chickens raised for meat and improving the conditions there. 
I think there is a chance that this type of intervention will face diminishing returns. However, I'm still optimistic that there are improvements that we can make in this type of intervention, expanding to farm fish, and hopefully in a few years we'll have better data on like what's working there, what the ask should be. On alternative proteins, it's a big category of possible things. You could be working in an alternative protein company yourself, helping to develop the new wave of Impossible Burgers or Beyond Meat. You could be building the academic field, or you could be lobbying governments to ease the path to these uh, products being introduced. But in my opinion, I think that alternative proteins matter only in so much as they are being consumed and bought in place of conventional meat, or at least that they are getting people to expand their moral circle and be willing to support policies that improve animal lives. So I personally would be more interested in seeing more work on the impacts of alternative proteins rather than accelerating the category of products that are available. I would be interested in your uh, views on some of the most effective um, policy interventions as well and, and some of the successes there. Yeah, policy is also quite a, a big scope. Obviously, we've seen the work on cage-free corporate campaigns translate neatly into legislation. You have many states in the US that have now banned or are phasing out cages for egg-laying hens. And similarly in Europe, you've seen some countries do the same. And now the EU signaling that in the coming decades, it might phase out crates and cages for a whole suite of, of animals in the food system. So I think we have a good model there of like building up pressure on the private sector side and also engaging the public to uh, motivate their public officials. Yeah, great. Taking a step back a bit now, it would be great to hear uh, just the basic case for why research is important for improving animal lives. Yeah. So I'm biased, obviously, because I work in a research organization, uh, but I think research is important for the targets, timing and tactics for the animal advocacy movement to employ. So in terms of targets, a lot of the research is very foundational, trying to establish know which animals are used uh, and suffering in the largest numbers. It would be great if organizations could target their strategies towards the animals that are suffering in the largest numbers, but in many cases we have a lot of uncertainty about how many animals there are or have no numbers at all. So a lot of the research is just establishing those basic facts. On the tactics, as I mentioned before about cage-free corporate campaigns, we now have some evidence that those work, um, but there's still a lot of uncertainty about what might work with fish uh, as we move forward in that area, or other animals that have not been the focus of attention of the EA movement. And then in timing, you can see in the alternative protein sector that I think a lot of the success of products like the Impossible Burger and the Beyond Meat Burger come from years that they spent in research and development to develop much better products than you've seen on the market before, rather than rushing into the market with an inferior product. And so I think that's a positive case for spending more time doing research. Yeah, so you're often in the weeds of the research and you're seeing things that most people on the outside wouldn't. When you speak to someone who might be, say, a donor, what are the things that typically surprise them or don't necessarily intuitively grasp right away? Yeah, so the first thing that surprises most people is the lack of research. Unlike in human health and development, for animal welfare, there isn't this publicly available, high-quality set of analysis on what interventions work and what don't, or cost-effective uh, estimates. So what evidence there is available is largely poor quality, and the good quality information is limited to cage-free corporate campaigns. But in reality, there are many other interventions that are already operating at scale. I would be really interested in hearing uh, from a personal perspective what really motivates you to work on this problem. Yeah, so I entered this space not having 
thought much about the animal welfare issue. I entered as a generalist researcher looking for neglected opportunities where I could apply my skills. Uh, but a lot of the work that was done by my colleagues, Jason and Daniela, about invertebrate sentience really caused me to update. I hadn't considered the moral significance of you know, more commonly known farmed land animals like chickens and pigs. Yeah, so we've taken uh, things from a donor's perspective a few times now um, and talking about research more broadly. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the many different ways that people might approach helping animals. Yeah, so I think broadly there's three categories. You could use your career, your vote, and your audience. So you could go and work for or found an effective animal advocacy organization or an alternative protein company and move the movement forward there. Or you could, if you're lucky enough to live in a country that has safe and accessible civic participation, you could support candidates or policies that might improve the lives of animals, or you could run for office yourself. If you happen to have a public platform, such as being a journalist or an academic or have a YouTube channel, uh, then you can raise awareness about animal welfare issues and advocate for the sort of giving opportunities as well that we've discussed. So another personal question now. I'd love to hear something consequential that you've changed your mind about recently. Yeah, I think the biggest update for me over like the last year has been more sort of ambitious and risky. So I think beforehand I would have focused my giving and my research work on very known quantities with very certain but maybe small impact. And I think now I'm much more willing to focus on things where there's a really high potential upside, even if the probability seems lower. And so that affects where I give my donations, what research projects I undertake, and also doing speaking engagements like this, where I'm naturally more of an introverted person, but I can see the value in disseminating research to targeted audiences, even when you know, the downside is maybe a bit embarrassment if I'm a terrible communicator, but the upside could be uh, changing a lot of people's minds. Yeah, were there any things in particular that led to that shift? Uh, I think a lot of the writings on the EA forum, especially this post by uh, Benjamin Todd about being ambitious, uh, shaped it. And also now the large amount of funding that's come into the effective altruism movement, I think, has given us more room to uh, fund bigger projects that can scale. I'd be really interested in uh, hearing a little bit more about some of the forecasting work that you've done around the next kind of 30 years of this space. Yeah, so specifically, my colleague Lynch and I looked into forecasting cultured meat. Cultured meat, which is uh, animal cells grown in a bioreactor into something that we would recognize as meat. No animals are farmed or slaughtered to produce this product, so it offers a lot of potential for reducing suffering uh, without people having to compromise on eating the food that they like. So we looked at a public database of predictions from cultured meat companies about when their products would come to market, and fortunately found that they were systematically over-optimistic about when their products would be on sale. So then we gathered a panel of expert forecasters to predict what production volumes of cultured meat we might expect to see per year over the next 30 years. Unfortunately for those excited about this space, uh, the results suggested that annual production of cultured meat over the next 30 years would not be any larger than total plant-based meat in the US. Uh, so that might suggest that simply pumping a lot of money in the short term into this space, hoping to nudge it into being a widely available product might not be the most promising strategy, but instead supporting more long-term payoff interventions that we might not see the results of for decades or funding things that are also likely to reduce uh, suffering of animals. 
I'd be interested in your theory of change as to what the distribution might look like over time. I have some intuitions that cultured proteins may have like some really strong successes, maybe in something like milk, uh, for example, but even if they're very successful, continue to be like marginal in the volume because many people actually don't care if it comes from a real animal, but some people will and it might be the difference. Um, that's my guesses, mm -hmm. but I'm completely <laughs> a novice in this space and would love to hear kind of what your intuitions are having done this research. Yeah, so I think some interesting research on consumer acceptance surveys from Chris Bryant and others has shown that the people who are most interested in cultured meat are right now heavy meat eaters, whereas the people who are interested in plant-based meat are more like vegetarians or flexitarians. And to the extent that we think cultured meat will be limited to being an ingredient in plant-based products otherwise, I think those heavy meat eater respondents will view this product as just another version of plant-based meat and that could limit how much it is adopted by the public. So that's why I'm trying to hedge my bets by investing both in like welfare reforms uh, that improve the lives of the animals that will remain in the farm system for, for many, many decades, and also be more open-minded in what types of alternative proteins we might explore. Like it's not just cultured meat or plant-based meat. There's also fermentation of various fungis. There's algae. There could be other more exciting ingredients and, and forms of meat alternatives. Yeah. Amazing. So, if you were given a billion dollars uh, to distribute to you know, solve some of these problems, I'd be really interested in how you would spend it. Yeah, so if you have a billion, please give it to me. Um, I think this is a really exciting question because there's a lot of discussion right now about so-called me mega projects that could absorb up to $100 million per year and affect much larger numbers of animals than we can currently affect uh, with our smaller scale interventions. So when I talked about some neglected regions being in Southeast Asia and South America, one of the bottlenecks appears to be a lack of people who will actually go and implement the interventions that we think work. So I'd be quite excited to have a big financial push to generate more people. So that could look like fellowships or training programs or meat reduction education in universities to build the pipeline of people who could implement the interventions that we know work in the regions that have been neglected. Yeah. And if you had any final asks for anyone listening to or watching this, what would it be? I think the most important thing for people is to consider how your actions are affecting animals and what ways you can improve them. And an easy way to do that is to give to highly effective charities. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. This has been really fascinating. I've learned a lot and I uh, hope others have too. Thanks for having me, Luke. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for lending me your ears for the duration of this episode. I hope you found it to be insightful. Don't forget to check out givingwhatwecan.org, where you can find our research on high-impact causes, donate to highly effective charities, and join our community of compassionate people. Finally, if someone you know will get value from this episode, why not share it with them? And until next time, keep on doing good. Mm -hmm.